0: get that idea as well here in just a minute, but let's open with a word of prayer and ask God to bless the lesson today. Uh, Lord God, we come to you again in prayer. We love you and we're thankful for the time to gather on your word. Uh, Lord, we're thankful that although we have a uh, strong enemy, Lord, we have an even stronger friend. As we sang about just now, what a friend we have, uh, Lord, in Jesus. I pray that you bless us as we study your word this morning, that we would understand the truths that are in the word of God and be prepared to stand against the wiles of the devil. Lord, we ask uh, that you bless this time in your word and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we see here in this verse that we are warned Satan wants to have an advantage over us. And he says, lest Satan should have an advantage over us for we are not ignorant of his devices. He he has devices, he has tactics that he uses, and he uses those to take advantage or to get an advantage in the life of a believer. If you remember from our lesson on rightly dividing the people of Proverbs, we had some uh, a couple months ago, we looked at the idea of ignorance. Uh, Anybody remember what the word ignorance carries the idea of? ignorant. Somebody that just doesn't know. Um, the simple. We looked at the simple and how they're ignorant. And there's somebody that just doesn't know. And he says, we're not ignorant. We don't not know um, what Satan is trying to do. We don't not know what he's trying to accomplish. We don't not know. And I know I'm using a bunch of double negatives here, um, just cringing the grammar people. Um, but we, we understand, we know we're not ignorant of his devices, of his tactics, of what he's trying to accomplish. What. That implies is if we are ignorant, if we don't understand, if we're, if we're, we just live in simplicity to what Satan wants to do and how he operates, he's going to be able to get an advantage over us. It's by understanding his devices that we can keep him from getting an advantage over us. We need to not be ignorant of the devices or tactics Satan uses to get advantages in the life of a believer. In this passage in particular, Paul is warning a church about forgiveness and unforgiveness. What had happened in the church of Corinth was there was a man who was participating in in very terrible sin. And in the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul said, "You you need to deal with that. You need to get him out of the church. He's ruining the testimony of the church, testimony of Christ. Get him out so that he can can realize what he's doing is wrong and hopefully come to repentance. And he actually exercised church discipline on this man. Well, that was happening in the first letter and they followed Paul's advice. They, they, They exercised church discipline on this individual, removed him from the membership of the church, and he has at this point repented. And Paul tells them, hey, he's repented. He's gotten right with God. What you need to do now is extend forgiveness to him lest Satan get an advantage over us. If you don't extend forgiveness, if you allow unforgiveness to remain in your heart, that's going to give Satan room to have an advantage over you. Because what he's trying to do, he's got these devices, he's got these um, operations, he, these tactics, where he can take unforgiveness, and he can put it in the heart of a believer, and let you have some animosity towards a brother or sister because of what they've done, and you hold unforgiveness. And then what you've done is you've given him a stronghold in your life when you, when you allow that to happen, and he starts to have... An advantage. If they withhold forgiveness, they're giving Satan that advantage. Unforgiveness is a tool Satan uses in a church or individual to get an advantage over them. We see this idea brought out even more in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 4. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, the verse there says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So he tells them there, we can we can tear down strongholds with the with the weapons that we have from God. And the strongholds he's referencing here is the same idea he's talking about with this advantage. Satan wants to get. A stronghold carries the idea of a castle. But in this context particular, it's a castle that the enemy has set up in your territory. Um, that, that they've made an incursion. That Satan's gotten some, some room in your life and he's set up a castle. A strong place there where he has an advantage in your life. Think of what's going on um, politically in the current war in Ukraine. All the way back in 2014, what did Russia do? They They came into Ukraine... And they set up a stronghold and then they bided their time until they saw weakness and they had their own strength and then they went from that place of stronghold to make a further attack in the country. Satan operates the same way. He looks for a moment of weakness in the life of a believer and says, oh, let me get in here and plant some unforgiveness and I'm going to sit right here in unforgiveness and I can just wait and I'll get stronger and stronger in my unforgiveness until I'm ready and they're weak and I can go in further and make a further incursion into their life. That's the idea here of a stronghold. And he warns them, don't let Satan have that advantage. Don't let Satan get that stronghold. Satan doesn't need to destroy a believer all at once. He doesn't need to um to just take over your life and bring it, bring you ruins. He's fine with just coming in And planting unforgiveness or planting bitterness or getting a hold of anger or or any other area where he can just get in and say, I don't need all of you. I just need this part of your life. And I'm going to hold on to that. He will build on that unforgiveness and then he'll develop bitterness. And from bitterness, he can take more territory and get anger. Once he's gotten to the stronghold of anger, he can go into any part of your life. He can destroy your marriage through your anger. He can destroy your children through your anger. He can destroy your testimony through your anger because he's made these incursions and strongholds and taken advantage over you as a believer. That's how he gets and he uses an advantage. So we think about this kind of as we begin. Where does Satan have an advantage? Where does he have a castle? Where does he have a stronghold in your life? You want to know how to identify a stronghold in your life? Find out what area God's attacking. Because um, that's where that's where God wants, I want that out of your territory, out of, the, out of your life. And so when you're at church and there's preaching and it bothers you about something that you're defensive about, well, that's a stronghold that God wants torn down um, in, in your life as a believer. So... If God's attacking part of your life and you're defending that part from God's attack, it's a stronghold that needs to be pulled down. So today we're going to look at Satan's tactics. How does he operate? How does he do what he does in the world so we can be on guard from his attacks? That way we won't be ignorant and we can keep him from developing these strongholds in our lives. So begin this morning, if you've got some of the notes, you can follow along, those also should be available online, but we're going to start by looking at the devil's allies or Satan's allies. He doesn't do this alone. We've brought this idea up several times even in this series, but just to flesh it out a little bit more. We understand that there are enemies that we have as believers. We have an enemy who is Satan. We have an enemy who is this world. We have an enemy of our flesh. They're all our enemies. They're all the enemy of what God is trying to do in our lives. So, they're working together. They're allies. The world works hand in hand with Satan. Our flesh works hand in hand with Satan to bring about destruction in our lives. So we see that the devil is not doing it on his own. He has these allies, the first of which is the world. This is one of the enemies of God and the Christian. As an enemy of God, the world is an ally of Satan. So what is the world? This enemy that we have, we understand it's not the people, not the individuals in the the world. Um, I'm going to skip that story that I just came to mind there. But we don't look at people and we say, okay, that is the enemy. No, the enemy is the world system that motivates the people um, that, to do what they do. We are called as Christians to love our neighbors and to love our enemies. So we're not told to love our neighbors, love our enemies, and hate the world if the world is our neighbors and our enemies. No, the world is separate from those things. We have a command to love the people, to minister to the people, to try to reach the people, but we don't love the world. So the world is not the people that are in the world. The world is also not the creation. Uh, we've been called to have dominion over God's creation. God has given us our got His creation to enjoy, uh, to use, to be stewards of. So it's not the physical earth that, that we're supposed to not not love. Now, there's a... There's a, a whole trail we could go down about people loving the world to the point where they're worshiping the earth, and that's obviously uh, sinful and idolatrous and all that. But God's given us His creation to enjoy and to use for His glory. So, it's not the, the physical world that we're talking about. The world, which is the enemy of God and the ally of Satan, is the system of this world that runs contrary to God. I found this definition in a book I was reading by Richard DeHaan. Uh, and he said this about the world. The world referred to by James and John, is the moral and spiritual system that we call human society. What does the world say about what's moral, about what's good? What do they elevate and what do they put, put down? What about their spiritual? What do they worship? What do they put a priority on? What do they make sacrifices to? The world system that is human society. Mankind, which has rejected God's revelation, has devised explanations of life, Moral standards and principles of context or conduct based upon human knowledge only. So, man says, I don't care what God says about it, we're going to use our mind to say what's good, to say how things came to be, to say how things ought to be, um, and they are doing it on their human knowledge with the rejection of God. Man, on the whole, operates on erroneous principles, selfish desires, improper motives, and unworthy standards of value. The science, The arts, politics, and entertainment are all dominated by a humanistic approach to life which draws men away from God and makes man the measure of all things. If you remember, as we as end there, let me read that again. Um, Draws men away from God, makes man the measure of all things, or makes man the standard of all things. Last week, we talked about what Satan's theology is. What he's trying to teach is that take God off the throne and make yourself the standard. And that's what the world has done. They've taken God off the throne and they said, we are the standard. We get to decide what's right and what's wrong and what's okay and what's not okay. What's true and what's not. I didn't Make your own, make your own reality. That's very prom- uh, prominent in the world today. Just determine your own reality and it's just a rejection of God's authority. And that's what the world system does. So, that's one idea of the world. It's the world system. It's man that has rejected God and made man the standard. And that's the system that motivates um, the evil that's in the world today. And it's working hand in hand with Satan. The world in the Bible also carries the idea of this present age or this present time. What's going on right now. The way things are now. This is where we get the idea of worldliness being conformed to this world. To this time matching what the world does. And that's what we have a warning against as Christians, to not be worldly. It's not a matter of getting involved in the, in the evil system of this world, but it's just going along with the pattern of the world. That's worldliness, going along with what's current, what's, what's popular at this present time. When you look at what the world does right now, or when you look, sorry, just like the world does right now, you're conformed to the image of the world. You are worldly. This is what the Pastor was preaching about just a couple weeks ago on James chapter four, when he taught about um, learning to. Do you remember? I just I <laughs> listened to it. Leave, leave, right, lead. Uh, where he was uh, rejecting the world as far as uh, the, the lust of the world and the flesh. And so you're, you're, um, you have that uh, preached a couple weeks ago about worldliness and how the love of the world is, is in our heart as Christians, and we need to get rid of that and not be like this present world and, and to re- reject that. Christians, we shouldn't be jumping on all the latest trends because we don't want the world to define our behavior. Um, what defines our behavior as Christians? The Word of God. Not what's popular, not what's current, not what everybody else is doing. It's what God said to do. So this world system and this world's trends and this world's fashions and this world's uh, standards, that's the world system that is the enemy of God and the ally of Satan, both working about to subvert God's authority. So that is one of the um, enemies or the allies of Satan. The world is working with the devil to develop strongholds in people's lives to prevent them from being obedient to God. Secondly, the other ally that Satan has is our flesh. The flesh is not just a reference to our physical bodies. It's connected to our sinful nature. Um, this flesh that we have, we walk around in, we have to feed it, we have to take care of it, um, we, we, we strengthen it. We, um, everything we do with our flesh, that, that is one aspect. But our flesh, that the Bible talks about, is our sinful nature. Uh, the part of us that works contrary to God in our lives. Now, at the same time... Our sinful nature is tied to this physical body. They are very connected. That's why this body is going to die. God's going to give me a new body because this body is tainted with sin, and it's corrupt, and it's unholy, um, and it's tied to my sinful nature. God's going to let this go down to the ground. It's going to return to dust, and He'll give me a new body that's not corrupted that way. Physical appetites that are tied to our physical bodies can be used to tempt to tempt us to go into sin. It's, it's the flesh, yes, our sinful nature, but it is even our, our physical flesh that has appetites that, are, that, temp, that we can be tempted with to go into sin. When you compare the temptation of Christ to the temptation of Eve, here we have two people that were without sin. Eve hadn't sinned. Jesus hadn't sinned. And so Satan's going to people who had never sinned before to offer them temptation. And what did he offer both of them? Food. That's how, that's how Satan said, I can get perfect people to fall by offering them food outside of the will of God. A fleshly appetite, something that our body needs, something that's, that's appropriate in its right place, but it's a fleshly appetite that can be brought about to tempt us to go into um, sin. He used a physical desire for food to tempt Eve and Christ to try to commit them to get them to commit a spiritual sin. A fleshly appetite can bring you into spiritual sin. Because our physical body is tied to our sinful nature. This is why we need to guard our physical appetites. A lot of things we can consider, but just consider the example of music. There is a music that appeals to our physical bodies, and it's spiritually wicked. You want to see an easy way to see if that type of music appeals to the flesh? Um, Watch a little kid hear it. Because the little kid hasn't learned how to control their physical body. And their physical body is going to respond to the music the way the music wants them to respond. And there's a fleshly appetite because of, of our sinful nature. Our sin nature is our flesh, and that is the enemy of God. There's a constant battle within a Christian where the flesh is warring against the spirit, the spirit is warring against the flesh. This will continue until I die, and the sin nature is going to stay with this corrupt body. It will rot in the ground while my soul, my spirit go to heaven to wait for a new body, and that new body will not have the same sinful nature to contend with. Both this world and our flesh aid Satan in his attacks on God's authority in our lives. The world wants to tell you what to do. The world wants you to submit to their authority, to their standard. Your flesh wants to tell you what to do and have you submit to your own authority. You do what you want to do. Do what makes you happy. That's the message of your flesh. And Satan doesn't care who you you submit to as long as it's not to the authority of God in your life. These are Satan's allies. They're working to undermine God's authority in our life. Secondly, this morning, we see that Satan has an army. Satan has an army. He's not doing this on his own. We see the soldiers that are in Satan's army. Satan's army is made up of fallen angels. Jude, verse number 6, refers to the angels which kept not their first estate. 2 Peter 2, verse number 4 says, "...for if God spared not the angels that sinned." Now, these contexts of these passages are referring to a very specific group of fallen angels, but they give us the context of fallen angels in general as those who have rebelled against God's authority along with Satan. These fallen angels are referred to as devils and unclean or evil spirits in the Bible. The word demon is actually not in the Bible. Uh, The Bible typically would call them an unclean spirit or would call them a devil. We're going to use the word demon to differentiate between devil, Satan, and demons would be those uh, those who work with and for him. There are no evil spirits comprised of disembodied souls of dead men. Uh, the idea of a ghost, where somebody dies and then their spirit stays in the house and, and haunts, or or the ancestors go visit a, a, a that that's all foreign to the Word of God, foreign to reality. There's no human whose spirit or soul is still wandering the earth after their body dies. The Bible is very clear: when a human dies, their soul goes either to heaven or goes to hell. Their body goes into the ground. There is no this, the popular cultural idea of, of the idea of ghosts and spirits in that way is foreign to truth. Foreign to the word of God, there are evil spirits of fallen angels that have authority on earth and they, they wander around in this atmosphere and they interact with, with humanity, um, but it's not people, it's not the, the disembodied souls of dead men. Angels, both fallen and those who have not fallen, have immaterial bodies, but they can take a form that can be viewed by people. Um, we see this with Luke chapter 24, verse 39. Jesus references to the disciples, Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Spirit, he said, spirits, they don't have flesh and bones. They don't have a physical, tangible body, but he recognizes that spirits could be seen at, at times. They can make themselves visible to, to men. We see this in Luke chapter two thirteen. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, the story of Christmas story, with the shepherds. All of a sudden, boom, they were able to see all of the angels. So they can be viewed by men, but they don't have material bodies the same way that, um, that men do. And we see from the book of Revelation that the fallen angels comprise about a third of the total number of created angels. In Revelation 12, verse 4, speaking of the dragon, which the chapter later identifies as the devil, it says his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. So, about a third of God's angels rebelled against him and went with Satan. That's the soldiers that are in Satan's army. We see that Satan's army has a structure in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 11 and 12, the Bible says, "...put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places." That there is a structure, there is an authority uh, structure within Satan's army that he has and that he uses to attack man. And why is that? This is a very important truth that we need to understand. Let's go to the book of Job. I want to point out three things about Satan himself and why Satan needs an army. Job chapter 1. We, we, we get confused about this sometimes, and we need to understand this about Satan and Satan's need for an army, because Satan, though he desires to be God, he is not God. And Satan is not omnipotent. Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is not omniscient. And so he can't do what he does on his own, he has to have help because he's limited um, we serve an unlimited God, and we have a very limited enemy when it comes to us believers. So, three things we see here. Satan is not omnipresent, not omnipotent, not omniscient. These words mean all-powerful, all, um, all, everywhere at once, and omniscient, all-knowing. These are terms describing God. Satan wants that for himself, but it is not true of Satan. Look at verse number 7 of Job 1. The Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. We see here in this verse, Satan is not on my present. God asked Satan, where have you been? Satan said, well, I was here and then I was here and I was walking over here, I was walking over there. Contrast this with what um, the psalmist said of God, whither shall I go from thy presence? You can't ask God, where have you been? Because God's everywhere. Satan, God said, where have you been? Because Satan can only be one place at a time. And so, he's limited in his presence. He can only be one place at a time. We see he's also limited in his power. Look at verse 11 and 12. But put forth, this is Satan speaking, put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he has is in thy power only upon himself. Put not forth thine hand. So, Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Now, Satan wanted to destroy Job's life. He wanted to do it, but he couldn't because he was limited in his power. He could only do what God allowed him to do. And even in this verse, God said, okay, everything he has, I'm giving to your power, but you can't do this. He is limited in his power. He's not all powerful because Satan is not God. And when we see that, we have a limited enemy in his power, in his strength. It's something that we, that we need to understand about Satan. He didn't even ask when it came to attacking Job, Satan didn't even ask if he could do it. He told God to do it. God, you put forth your hand against him. Um, Satan didn't even, they even it seems like didn't even think he could do such a thing. Why well, God's gonna just give me one of his servants to destroy his life? God, you 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 do this, and this is what Job's gonna do. But God gave Satan some power, but only some power, limited power in Job's life. We understand that God offers us the same protection as well, first Corinthians ten thirteen, there had no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Whenever Satan wants to come into the life of a believer and bring havoc and destruction, God says, Well you can only do this much. And God draws the line and Satan can't cross the line no matter how much Satan wants to because Satan is limited in his power. He is not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He's also not omniscient. Look at verse 11 again. In verse 11 he told um, God, Put forth thine hand now, touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. The devil said, I know what's going to happen. Did it happen? Nope. nope. Satan didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, he is limited in his knowledge. He doesn't know everything. Although Satan is limited in his person, he is effective in his work through the work of his demons. So Satan can't do it on his own because he's a limited, limited being. And he has a lot of other limited beings, a lot of other limited evil spirits that are, that, are, that are helping him accomplish what he's trying to do in this earth. So Satan has an army, but the reason he does is because he's a limited foe. Um, and we serve an unlimited God. Um, great truth that we need to remember. So, we see in, the, in Ephesians 6 that God descri- the Bible describes the structure Satan has within his armies. There is the word principalities, wrestling not against flesh and blood but against, blood, but against principalities. The word principality carries the idea of a chief, someone who has others under his authority. And then it says, and against powers. This is the idea of a, a force or troops or just the foot soldiers. So, Satan's got foot soldiers, Satan's got chiefs. And it says the rulers of the darkness of this world. This carries the idea of regional rule rule that there are areas where some ranking demons have authority over a certain area again because they're limited in their ability they can only be one place at a time we see an example of this in the book of daniel and daniel chapter 10 verse number 13 the bible says but the prince of the kingdom of persia withstood me one in 20 days but lo michael one of the chief princes came to help me what's going on here in this passage is an angel was sent by God to bring Daniel an answer to his prayer and Daniel waited 3 weeks for this answer to prayer and and it didn't come finally this vision comes where this angel comes to Daniel and says hey I came to bring you the message, but I ran into the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now that's not talking about a physical prince of, of a man who was in charge. That was a, a demon who had authority over the area of Persia that withstood this angel. And the angel said, I had to get Michael to come help me. And he withstood the prince so I could come bring you this message. So there's a, there's a regional rule that, that Satan has some authority, um, some demons and authority in authority in those regions. And we see also the verse mentioned spiritual wickedness in high places. And this is focusing more on the spiritual realm than the the geographical realm, that there's spiritual authority with his his, um, demons as well. Of course, evil spiritual authority. These demons are organized under Satan's authority. They're busy about his work as the god of this world. We see also the scope of his army. What are they able to or allowed to do? What can these demons accomplish? We see in the Bible three kind of areas, categories we could put um, demons work into. And first of all, there's demonic temptation. In Matthew chapter 4, verse number 1, the Bible says, uh, Jesus was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, um, that the devil brought about temptation, and that's something that the devil and his demons will do. They will put temptation in the way of a Christian, a temptation, an opportunity to sin. They'll put that into your into your path so that they can work hand in hand with your flesh, because we go into sin when our flesh has a lust, and then that lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death, James chapter 1, um, that the, the demon works hand in hand with our flesh, his, our, his ally, to put temptation in the path of oblivion and so that's something that, that Satan does with his army is to put temptation in our way. We also see demonic oppression. The, 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 consider the story of Job, how, how Satan was able to come into his life and, and bring about tragedy and, and bring about hardship and, and heartache and discouragement and, and, and friends that would discourage him and, and, and a wife that would tell him just to go ahead and die and this oppression that would go against Job and just to bring all this, uh, all this hurt into his life to try to get him to reject God. And we see in the story of Job that that is something God allowed to come into Job's life as a test. And we know that God allows trials in our lives to to test us, and those are sometimes of demonic origin, that they wanted to do it, and they bring that test to God, God can see if we're faithful. There's other trials, the Bible clearly says out, that God allows to happen in our lives. There's other trials that happen just because we live in a fallen world and bad stuff's going to happen because of the sinful nature of this world, but one area That Satan has some authority is to bring about oppression, to bring about hardship, to bring about difficulty um, in the lives of people. We also see from the Bible that um, there is demonic possession that takes place. There are many instances we see of this in the Bible and the New Testament, especially in the Gospel accounts because we see Jesus' interaction with the spiritual realm as He casts these demons out of people. Important thing to note, demons cannot possess a Christian. A Christian is possessed by the spirit of God and cannot be possessed by an unclean um, spirit. That's where we we Christians go under demonic oppression. They have to bother us from without because they can't get in because God's spirits within. So we have, but there are demonic possession that takes place of unsaved individuals. Demonic possession, when we look at it in the Bible, usually showed up in one of two ways. One was not obvious, and the other was obvious. So, the not obvious way was there was sometimes dem- demonic possession appeared through a physical limitation. There was somebody who was blind, who was deaf, who was dumb, who had an ailment for eight, 18 years, the lady did, in um, a, a bondage of Satan, Jesus said, that there's sometimes physical, physical ailment and... Jesus had to identify that, said this one's caused by a, a demon, and then we had another man who was born blind, and this, this happened because God wanted to get glory in his life. We can't identify when a physical limitation is because of, of demonic possession, but we know that it does happen, that a demonic possession can result in somebody having a physical limitation that way. It's not always the case, because there were a lot of people Jesus just healed by giving physical healing to. Um, it wasn't obvious to anyone other than Jesus when it was the work of demons causing physical suffering with an individual. We see the more more obvious method of, of demon possession when there was a person's physical transformation. When the demon made them into something different than they were. And that was a very obvious um, transformation of the demonic possession. A demon would severely alter the behavior of people often causing self-harm and destructive actions. Remember the man who brought his son to Jesus and said, "I try to get your disciples cast him out but they couldn't do it. He often throws himself into the fire. He often throws himself into the water. There was a demon controlling this child's actions to bring about destruction and harm to the to the to the child. So there's an obvious physical transformation when a demon possesses a person in this way. Demons would also alter a person's mental state. When Jesus healed the Gadarian maniac, what did it say? He was seated seated and clothed and in his right mind. This Devil, devils within him had put him out of his right mind. He wasn't in control of his own actions. He wasn't in control of his own faculties. The demonic possession caused him to be somebody that he wasn't. And when the demon was gotten rid of, then he was back to his right mind, the way that he ought to be. Demons can take over a person's identity. When again, when Jesus came to the Gadarene maniac, he said, what's your name? And the guy didn't say Joseph, whatever the guy's name was. It said, we are legion. It was the demons who answered Christ. They had taken over this person's identity. Now we have in in the world today, and just to throw this out here, be very careful when it comes to looking into the, the, the demonic practices and occult. And I give this warning around Halloween when I'm teaching the teenagers, Stay away from horror films. Stay away from that demonic stuff because that can open you up to demonic um, oppression. And an unsaved person, it can open up to demonic um, possession when you're looking in. it, So be very careful with this. And we're not looking for, but it's something that's real. And we need to understand that it's real. And we see in, in, in history, the more Christian a culture is, the less demonic influence is, is available or seen in a Christian society, but the less Christian influence there is, the more prevalent it is. And we're starting to see that in our country. A lot more demonic activity taking place in our country. And this in particular, assuming somebody's identity, now with what's going on in our country right now with the transgender mess that's going on right there? Most of that is um, what they would call a societal contagion, that people are just copying each other. But there are individuals who are saying, I have a different identity within me, and I'm identifying as a we, and uh, I have several different people inside of me, and they all have different voices, they're talking to me. That's characteristic of biblical demonic possession. And we, we see that, and it's, it's very dangerous. The, de- the desire to have a multiple personalities, to be identified as we, to wanting to harm and mutilate the body. These are things done by demons that live within people. And the less Christian influence there is, the more authority that the the demons seem to have to, to do their work in a society. So that's the work or the scope of what Satan's army can do. They can bring temptation, they can bring oppression, and there are people that they can take possession of. That's what we see biblically in the Bible with Satan's army. We see, thirdly, this morning, Satan's attacks. We're looking at his tactics. What does he do? How does he go after individuals? Now that we understand his allies and his army and what they do, how does he come after us as Christians in the area of temptation in particular? 1 John 2.16 says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. We see three categories, a lot of temptations we could talk about, anger and bitterness and lust and envy and all these things we could talk about, but they kind of fit into these three categories. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. First of all, the lust of the flesh. This is a desire for possession, something that I want. I have a fleshly desire and I want to meet that flesh desire. I want to satisfy me. That's a lust of the flesh. It's a desire to fulfill our material appetites. When Eve was tempted, she saw the tree was good for food. That's a fleshly appetite she wanted to satisfy. Jesus was tempted to make the stones into bread, a fleshly appetite He was tempted to satisfy. The lust of the flesh is the desire to satisfy yourself outside of the will of God. God has a place for your heart to be ministered to through music. So, speak yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. God, God has created you to have a need that is met through music, but you can do that outside the will of God. Meet that need in a way that, that appeals to your flesh and fills a fleshly appetite. God has a way for you to satisfy your physical need for food. But gluttony is outside of the will of God. God has a, a place for someone to fill the natural sexual desire that is part of our flesh within the bounds of marriage. But there's a way to fulfill that outside of the will of God. There's a way for you to fulfill your fleshly need of rest. But laziness is outside of the will of God. So a lust of the flesh is when I have a desire and I'm meeting it outside of God's will. That's a lust of the flesh. Whenever we go outside of God's way, we give in to the lust of the flesh. Secondly, we see the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. This can be defined as gratification by contemplation. Gratification by contemplation. What am I doing with my eyes? Because you know what? My eye affects my heart. And when I'm looking at the right kind of things, I'm affecting my heart the right kind of way. But when I'm letting my eyes contemplate that which God said no, then I'm affecting my heart in a negative way. I'm giving into to a lust of the flesh. What you use your eyes for is what you fill your heart with. The temptation to lust after things forbidden. Eve was tempted when she saw the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes. She was looking at it like, oh, that would be really good to enjoy outside of what God had said for me to do. And she was just thinking about it. That was the lust of the eyes. She didn't take part of it in a a lust of the flesh yet. She started with the lust of the eyes, contemplating the, the sin, doing it that way. Jesus was tempted towards this when the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms. Look at all this that you could have if you go outside of God's will. You could have all these kingdoms now, a lust of the eyes. We went, while we can often guard ourselves from physical sins and temptations, how well do we do in our minds? Greed, covetousness, lust, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, these are all sins of the mind. And we can have all that corruption going on in here and have a really good outside That nobody else, nobody can tell what's going on in here but we, but us and God. But we can keep the flesh looking good. But what's going on up in here? That's where the battle begins for us as as Christians. This is what Jesus was pointing out when He talked about lust being the same thing as adultery. He said, when you look upon a woman to lust after her, He's committed adultery with her in His heart already. That's a lust of the eyes. You're letting your eyes think about something that you are not allowed to do with your flesh. And He just says it's the same thing. And He that um You've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. Uh, but I say unto you, he that hateth his brother without a cause. Um, it's counted as murder. He said, if you, you didn't go kill him, you thought about it. You, got, you, you allowed anger to dwell up here. And Jesus says, it's the same thing. When you let a sin happen up here, even if you don't let it happen out here. And that's where God's standard is. So, a, a lust of the eyes. A lust of the eye to entertain an emotional sin while abstaining from the physical sin. The emotional sin of anger, I'm not going to commit the physical sin of murder. But they're both the same, because they're both a sin. And then we have the pride of life. Pride of life. Pride is Satan's foundational sin. It's no wonder he tempts man with this. If a perfectly created angel will fall to the temptation of pride, how easy is fallen man going to stumble with the same sin? Pride is defined biblically as thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Eve was tempted with pride when she was told she could be as a god, and when she saw that the tree was desired to make one wise. Satan was tempted with the pride of life when Satan, or sorry, Jesus was tempted with the pride of life when Satan told him to cast himself from the temple. I mean, weren't you, aren't you so important that God has to protect you? You're just so, you're just so great. You, should, you could do this and God's going to um, have to, you can manipulate God with your behavior. Pride was the temptation. Pride of life goes back to what we talked about last week with refusing to submit to God's authority in our lives. Satan thought he knew better than God and he was going to take God's throne. And he tempts us to do the same thing, think that we know better than God And to take over God's authority in our lives. So we see that Satan has these allies in our flesh and in this world. We see that Satan has his army and he's got a structure to it because he's limited. He can't do it. He has to have help. And so we see his army there. We see his attacks. He goes after us through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But I want to end here this morning on Satan's adversaries. Satan's adversaries. Who are Satan's enemies? We are all right, we, we, we always look at ourselves in a defensive posture when it comes to Satan. Satan's attacking me, Satan's attacking me. Well, that means if he's my enemy, that means I'm his enemy. Amen. All right, and I've got an ally on my side, um, just like he has allies on his side. Uh, and my allies uh, not with, doesn't have any limit uh, when it comes to greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There's no limit in the ally on my side. He has great armies. Uh, he has great allies. He has deadly attacks, but that should not cause us to wither in fear. Jesus said that we are more than conquerors. We don't have to be living in fear. We don't have to be living in defeat. We can have victory um, as we look to understand our enemy. God expects us as believers to repel Satan's attacks. We're told in Ephesians 6 that we can stand and withstand the attacks of the devil. We are told in the book of James that we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. You look, at, you look at, at, at Satan and the power that, that he has, and the armies and the ability and the knowledge that he has, even though it is limited, it's much more than we have, but we have Christ. And I can do all things through Christ. And when it comes to Satan, he can come to me and I can stand against him, I can resist him, and he has to run away um, because I have Christ within me. Matthew tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Can't have victory. Satan can't have victory when he goes against God's church. We 're told in the Book of First John that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, 1 John chapter four we 're told in second Corinthians that we looked at at the beginning. the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to do what? Pull down strongholds, pull down strongholds that 's what God wants us to do he 's a mighty enemy, but through the power of Christ, the weakest Christian becomes his formidable adversary. What a mighty enemy we have in satan he 's got a great army, great allies, great attacks that he brings. But when he comes up against a weak Christian who's relying on the Spirit of God, who's walking in the Spirit of God, he has to run away. We can have victory as believers when we walk in the Spirit and live life through the power of Christ. So we see Satan, and and it can be terrifying to kind of peek back the curtain and see the spiritual realm and what Satan's able to do. And you look at the stories of how this one angel was prevented by a demon for 21 days. And angels are so much more powerful than us. You see Michael in the book of Jude contending with the devil. But what did Michael do? He said, well, the Lord rebuked thee. And you know what? I've got the Lord with me too. And uh, and I can withstand Satan's attack. So when he comes with temptation, when he comes with oppression, and he brings about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, God says, I've limited his power. You have a way to escape. And that's by relying on Christ and withstanding Satan's attacks. So yes, Satan is our enemy, but we are his, and we've already been guaranteed the victory as believers.